In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Thus begins the greatest story ever told. The Bible is a true story, history, but it is a story nonetheless. It has a plot, it has characters, it has conflict, and it has resolution. And understanding the first few chapters of that story, Genesis 1-3, to is crucial to understanding the rest of the story. So I've been preaching through the first couple chapters of Genesis over the last several months, and we're at the beginning of chapter 3 tonight. But let's review before we go on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. This is where the story starts. God's Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. What would it have been like to be there in that early stage of creation where God has just brought something other than Himself into being for the first time. But all is without form and void and dark. And the Spirit of God is hovering. What would it have been like to be there, to be a spectator? We can only speculate about such things. But into this primordial world, God speaks. English, Hebrew, Certainly not. But what, it, what must it have been like to hear God, the voice of God saying, let there be light. However it was that He uttered those words. And to see brilliance emerge from the utter darkness. And then, to hear God speak again and establish some sort of boundary between light and darkness. I was on a plane a number of years ago, flying from west to east around sundown, and if I looked out the plane window, I could see behind me bright daylight and full-on nighttime if I looked ahead of me. At 35,000 feet in the air, it was a transcendent experience as I was not subject to the normal localized gradual progression from day to night and I felt like I could see the whole spectrum laid out before me out the plane window. Perhaps being there as God separated the day from the night would feel something like that. You'd have this sense of awe, this sense of wonder to see God speak and separate light from darkness. Whatever that must have, might have looked like. Again, We can only speculate. And God speaks in the divine tongue again saying, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. As God brings light and order to a world that was dark and 
formless. We read in the scriptures, God saw that it was good. He looked upon it with approbation, approval, delight, and God saw that it was good. But God is not content with a world simply lit up and organized. He wants it full. And with a word from God, the earth brings forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and trees yielding fruit. And the waters begin to swarm with swarms of living creatures from the ocean floor to rocky coastlines and sandy beaches. To the terrestrial world above the sea, thousands, millions of creatures come into existence, each with their own attributes and features, well suited for the mode of life that God has assigned to them. And above, birds, bats, butterflies, winged creatures of every sort. The sky is populated in an instant as God speaks each intricately designed type of air dweller into being with a single pronouncement. So you have the sea creatures, the air dwellers, and the land dwellers. From the termite to the elephant, God calls land dwellers of all sorts into being. The gazelle bounds across a plain. The lion roars. The dog barks. The ants go marching one by one. The lizard enjoys its first ray of sunshine. What a world. In place of formlessness, void, and darkness, light, order, life, And God saw that it was good. 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 And And behold, it was very good. God had made a wonderful world full of light, order, and life in the place of the formlessness and the void and the darkness that we read about in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. Behold, it was very good. From this biblical account, it's clear that we serve a powerful God. He who spoke the Son into being must have some kind of power behind His words. He who populated the earth from one frozen pole to the other and from east to west with sea creatures and land dwellers and flying things of every sort must be an unfathomably powerful being. And he must be wise. How could he account for all the variables of the created order? Suiting the environment for its inhabitants and suiting the inhabitants for their environment. How could He do it unless He were all wise? And moreover, in addition to power and wisdom, this Creator God is benevolent. 
generous and good and kind, benevolent, that the ant should find honey, that the termite should find wood, that the lizard should find sun. This is God's benevolence. And it's in this good world that our benevolent God places mankind. And benevolently, He provides for Adam every tree that he will need. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9 says that out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God puts the man in a good world full of light, order, and life and commands the man to maintain that light, order, and life. And to propagate further light, order, and life. Certainly Adam is not to undo what God has done. Adam is not supposed to plunge the earth back into formlessness, void, and darkness. On the contrary, Adam is to infuse the world with further light, order, and life. In Genesis 1.26, we read of God's plan to make man in His image after His likeness. As a being made in the image of God, Adam is supposed to resemble God. To be a statue of God, as it were. A representative of God that bears His name and His likeness. Placed under God's law to reflect God's moral character. Adam is to be one who, even without speaking, is to be like God in such a manner that he says something true about who God is. More than any other creature, Adam is granted the privilege of knowing the truth about who God is and the privilege of enlightening the world about who God is. And Adam is to be a sort of king. Genesis 1.26 also says that Adam is to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps On the earth. Thus, Adam is placed under God and over animals. He is to rule over them, to maintain and even to establish further order among God's creatures. By keeping animals in subjection to Him, He's maintaining the order that God has created. And by doing things like training horses and dogs, Adam is to bring further order as he rules over the animals. And Adam is to be fruitful and multiply. He can't create life, strictly speaking, the way that God did in creation. But Adam can multiply existing life through procreation. And by maintaining order in creation, he can manage the environment of other creatures such that they can flourish and multiply as well. So we see in the creation narrative that God is good. And so, God created a good creation. It was full of light, order, and life. Things that are intrinsically good. God says it was good seven times as the earth goes from disorder, void, and darkness to order, light, and life. And Adam was created to be good, like God, and to do good, 
like God. Adam was to preserve and protect the light order and life that God had woven into creation. And Adam was to establish more light order in life. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is what we read in Genesis 3.1. After everything I've just covered, when we read Genesis 1 and 2, it sounds like a utopia. There's nothing, there's nothing really negative in, verses, in chapters 1 and 2. But we come to chapter 3 and verse 1 and we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Even if we hadn't read on yet the rest of the Bible, doesn't this just sound ominous? Into the story where we're introduced to a good God and a good creation and an as yet good man under a good law given for his flourishing we now read of a crafty serpent. We know from the rest of the Bible that Satan was involved in the temptation of Adam in the garden. But reading Genesis 1-3 to on its own, we wouldn't know anything about that yet. And Adam wouldn't have known much, if anything, about Satan yet either. So let's allow Genesis 3 to stand on its own two feet for now, without importing too much Subsequent revelation back into the text at this point. So along came a snake. And like God, and like the man, it speaks. The order of speakers in the narrative of the first three chapters of the Bible is God, who speaks first, and then man, who speaks second, and then this snake, who speaks third. And what does the snake say? First, did God actually say? Second, you will not surely die. Third, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The snake undermines the validity of God's word. The snake contradicts the truthfulness of God's Word. The snake questions God's motivations. God created physical light, to be sure. But moreover, He gave Adam His Word to be, as the psalmist says so many years later, a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. The snake implies the opposite, that God's words are invalid. And that true light is to be found in listening to Him, the snake, instead. Thus, the snake's first words, Did God actually say, promise more light, but are actually only an attempt to snuff out the true light of God's Word. And God created order, among other things, the order of authority in creation is God over man and man over animals. But here in his second word, you shall not surely die, the serpent seeks to reverse the order. 
A snake is attempting to exercise authority here over a man. And even over God. By suggesting that the man is in a position to exercise authority over God by rejecting His Word. Animal over man. Man over God is the suggestion. A better order is implied than that which God has set up in the beginning. Thus, the man would do better to listen to an animal and reject the authority of God over him, the snake suggests, speaking against God's order. God created life. Obviously, that's the case. We just have to look back at the last two chapters. As Romans 11:36 says, From Him are all things. God is the source of life. And God defines the parameters of life. In other words, God has the right, and God has exercised the right, to say, outside of these parameters, you shall surely die. If you stray outside of these parameters, you shall surely die. The snake's third assertion. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent's third assertion is that God is trying to withhold life from Adam and Eve by keeping the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from them. He is implying that if Adam and Eve want true life, real life, if you want to really live, don't listen to God. Listen to the snake. This is an attack on the source of life itself, God. And thus an attack on life itself. Listening to the snake's third assertion, that God's motives are selfish in withholding the tree, will not lead to true life as the snake promises, but only to the death that God had warned about. What the snake suggests is sin. The transgression of God's law. God clearly prohibited Adam from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the snake suggests that Adam should sin. That Adam should transgress that law. And the way that the snake reasons is that if you sin, if you listen to me, the snake says, you have more light, a better order, and real life. But all that sin delivers is darkness, disorder, and death. Sin in its very essence then is anti-good and anti-God. If light, order, and life are intrinsically good things that draw God's approbation, if these are the things that God has commanded, 
But sin brings darkness and disorder and death. Sin is anti-good and anti-God. And Adam does sin. We read in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3 that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In doing so, Adam acts in a way that is anti-goodness and anti-God. And the effect? Darkness, disorder, death. In Jeremiah 4.23, God is speaking of the effects of His people's sin. And He says poetically, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. This is what sin did in Genesis 3. This is what sin did in Jeremiah chapter 4. And this is what sin does in our own lives. It causes darkness and disorder and death. The opposite of God's good creation. Sin is uncreation or decreation, if you will. Sin is the opposite of our reason for existence. Adam's sin was an instance of poor, faulty image-bearing, being unlike God, telling lies as his representative about who he is, about who God is, that is. Adam's sin was an instance of poor, faulty dominion-taking of creation, allowing disorder to flourish under his watch, rather than cultivating order by taking dominion he should have. Adam's sin was an instance of exchanging life for death. He thought sin would bring him life, but it did the opposite. For him and for his descendants, including us. He plunged us into not only a bad quality of life as sinners, but into the judicial cursedness of sin. Inevitable physical death, and subsequent eternal death in hell under the wrath of God. Because of Adam's sin, the human race became dead men walking with nothing to anticipate but death upon death for eternity under God's judgment. More on that in another sermon as we investigate the consequences of sin in greater detail throughout the rest of chapter 3. What did God do when Adam said? Remember that we saw earlier that God is powerful and wise and benevolent. What did this powerful, wise and benevolent God do when Adam sinned and plunged the world backwards into darkness, disorder and death? Brothers and sisters, friends, The one with power to speak the world into existence set His power to work for the redemption of sinners. Sinners like Adam and Eve. Sinners like you and me. 
power of heaven is at work in the gospel to save people like you and me from the darkness, disorder, and death of our sin. As Paul said in Romans 1.16, So I say to you tonight, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Believer, the cross of Christ is powerful and effectual to undo the effects of sin in your life and in the cosmos. There are those who will refuse to trust in the power of the cross and perish in their sin and receive that dreadful eternal punishment that God threatened to Adam in the beginning. But there are those of whom I am one and of whom many of you are who trust that God is at work powerfully through His Son to save all those who are desperate from release for release from the darkness and disorder and death that our sin has brought into our lives. That power, the power of the gospel shall prevail. And we who have trusted in it will live with God forever with our trust vindicated in a new heavens and a new earth made new by that same power. And this plan to unleash the power of heaven for the redemption of sinners stems from God's wisdom. A wise woman says in 2 Samuel 14 and verse 14 that we are in our sins like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. In other words, we are hopelessly lost. But she goes on to say, but God devises means that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Indeed, God has in His infinite wisdom devised means to gather up again water spilled on the ground. God has in His divine wisdom devised means to be just and justify the ungodly. Romans 3, 23-26 points us again toward the cross. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And the cross flows not only from God's power and wisdom, but from His benevolence. As I read from Genesis 2 verse 9 earlier, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. After the fall, the sort of tree that we deserved was not a tree for our consumption, but a tree where we would be consumed by the wrath of God. But in His benevolence, God provided a tree where a substitute would be consumed in our place. As Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So prior to the fall, God in His benevolence provided for mankind every tree that we needed. And after the fall, God continues to provide for man every tree that we need. At Calvary 2,000 years ago, He provided that tree that we needed most. So sin is anti-goodness and anti-God. But God is ever good and ever God. He continues to be, after the fall, who He was before the fall. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. His power, His wisdom, and His benevolence were obvious in creation. And after the fall, His power and His wisdom and His benevolence continue to be evident to us as we look at the cross where God overcomes the darkness, disorder, and death of our sin once and for all. Have you trusted in the power, wisdom, and benevolence of God manifest at the cross? Do you believe that at the cross, God's power and wisdom and benevolence are at work to save sinners like you from what you deserve? Darkness and disorder and death because of your sin. Do you believe that Jesus is a capable and able Savior, powerful and mighty to save you from sin and its effects? Do you trust that He acted as a substitute, receiving punishment for sin in your place, according to the Father's plan, so that God could justly forgive you without overlooking sin? Do you believe that the cross is God's wise plan to gather up water spilled on the ground, to redeem the otherwise hopeless mess of your life? Do you trust that when Jesus hung on that, that tree, that He bore the judicial penalty, the curse that you deserve for your sins? And do you believe that all of this flowed from God's benevolence, His generosity, and His kindness, and His goodness? May we all.